Hello and welcome to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Join our barristers as they discuss their expertise on trending topics and debates in the legal sector. If you want to be part of the discussion, subscribe below to receive our latest episodes. I am Tom Croxford Casey, the chair of the Employment Group in Chambers, following the elevation of Jane Mulcahy to co-head of Chambers. It's my pleasure to welcome you all to the Blackstone Chambers annual Employment Competition Seminar podcasts. The first one of these seminars was to celebrate the publication of what's still the leading textbook in this area, Employee Competition, edited by Paul Goulding, KC. Paul joins us to talk with his usual positivity about the plans of a Tory government, this time in relation to restrictive covenants. Paul needs no introduction. He's not merely top tier. He is the first choice employment silk. In the pantheon of greats, he's up there with his beloved footballing heroes. On the 10th of May 2023, the UK government announced its intention to legislate to ban post-termination non-compete restrictions in employment contracts lasting more than three months. This heralds a change in the law that's applied in this area for over 300 years. I want to briefly consider three aspects of this proposal. Uh, What is the background? What is the substance? And what are the implications? But before turning to those three questions, let me begin with two quotes which give contrasting views on the current state of the law on non-competes. The first is this. Restrictive covenants are a valuable and necessary tool for employers to use to protect their business interests and do not unfairly impact on an individual's ability to find other work. Common law has developed in this area for over a century and is generally acknowledged to work well. The second quote is this. Unnecessarily burdensome non-compete clauses have become a default part of too many employment contracts, including where they fulfil no purpose. This can inhibit workers from looking for better paying roles and limit the ability of businesses to compete and innovate. So who said these two things? Were they opposing academics, debating the merits of non-competes, or perhaps counsel on different sides of an argument on enforceability? In fact, they are both the official statements of the Conservative government. The first was made in 2018, and the second was made in 2023. And it's worth perhaps highlighting some features of those two statements. In the first of them, it's said that non-competes are a valuable and necessary tool for employers which do not unfairly impact an individual's ability to find work. The second, it's said that non-competes inhibit workers seeking better paid roles and limit the ability of businesses to compete and innovate. So what has happened between 2018 and 2023 to bring about such a U-turn in the government's view of the merits of non-competes? Well, the only factor put forward in the recently published government document supporting the proposal is the COVID-19 pandemic, which is said to have had a profound impact on the labour market and has led the government to reconsider measures to boost innovation and create the conditions for new jobs 
and increase competition. Well, I'll leave it to others to decide whether the coronavirus fully explains why non-competes that were necessary for employers and fair to employees in 2018 uh, now inhibit workers and limit the ability of businesses to compete and innovate. That second quote is from the government's policy paper published on the 10th of May, which also contained the following announcement. The government intends to legislate when parliamentary time allows to limit the length of non-compete clauses to three months, providing employees with more flexibility to join a competitor or start up a rival business after they've left a position. So the express premise of the policy paper in which that intention is announced is that Brexit affords the UK the opportunity to rethink how and when we regulate. And the particular non-compete proposal is found in the third part of the paper that says it sets out the government's commitment to reforming our existing stock of regulation and cutting red tape for businesses. Uh, it seeks to achieve this objective of reforming regulation and cutting red tape by apparently introducing state regulation into the field of restrictive covenants for the first time in over 300 years. So turning to the first of the three questions, uh, what is the background? And it's worth considering this briefly just to help us perhaps understand a little more about the government's thinking and what shape the reform might take. And there are three parts to the background. In 2016, the government published a call for evidence on non-competes. In response, the Employment Lawyers Association provided a detailed uh, paper summarising the existing law and answering the 30 questions that the government had proposed. The government responded only two years later, in 2018, when in its response to the Taylor Review on the Future of Work it contained a short statement in page 58 of that document announcing that the common law was generally acknowledged to work well in this area of non-competes and it wasn't necessary to take any further action at that stage. Secondly, in 2020, December 2020, the government launched a consultation on the reform of non-competes. In that consultation paper, it advanced two options Option one was what it called mandatory compensation, so that non-competes would only be enforceable if the employer provides compensation throughout its duration, which is the position in a number of other countries such as Germany and France. The government also identified what it called a potential complementary measure to option one, which was placing statutory restrictions on the length of non-competes. Option two in the paper was to ban non-competes entirely, citing California as a model of innovation where non-competes are void. Uh, again, the Employment Lawyers Association, amongst others, submitted a detailed response, which also contained the results of a survey of businesses and their thinking on non-competes and potential reform. On Friday, the 12th of May this year, two days after the announcement of the statutory cap, the government published a detailed response to that consultation that had closed over two years previously. That response made a number of uh, interesting statements. It says that the government estimates that around 5 million employees in the UK are subject to a non-compete with a typical duration of six months. 
of the three periods presented in the 2020 consultation for a maximum limit on non-competes, the government says that the most favoured option was 12 months and the least favoured was three months. It explains that the government will apply the statutory limit of three months to non-competes only, not to other restrictive covenants, and only in contracts of employment and LIMB worker contracts. It won't apply to what the government describes as wider workplace contracts, such as partnership agreements, LLP agreements and shareholder agreements. And the government considers that guidance on non-complete clauses to support both employers and employees would be an effective way of raising awareness about non-competes and the law underpinning them. And overall, the government maintains that it is, as it puts it, leading the world in cracking down on the use of non-competes. At the same time as publishing that response, the government published an impact assessment, uh, which is well worth a read because it contains an analysis of the supposed effects on competition and innovation of introducing this statutory cap. And it sets out the results of surveys of employers and employees undertaken as part of the consultation. I haven't got time to go into the detail of that impact assessment. Suffice to say that as I read it, the government appears to accept that the results of its survey and the likely impact of the statutory cap on competition and innovation are, as it puts it, inconclusive. Uh, the third stage in the background is that in January 2023, the Federal Trade Commission in the US uh, proposed introducing a rule to ban non-competes entirely in the US and requiring employers to rescind all existing non-competes within six months of the rule taking effect. The consultation on that proposal ended at the end of April and amongst other topics on which the FTC consulted was whether senior executives should be exempt from the ban or subject to a rebuttable presumption of unenforceability. It's strange, perhaps, that in the UK government's response published on the 12th of May, it states that there have been no restrictions on non-competes introduced in the US at federal level, uh, which appears to overlook the FTC proposal entirely. So that's the background. Second question, uh, what do we know about the substance of the proposal uh, well, at the moment, there's no real flesh on the bones, so um, we'll have to await clarification from the government. But I think three questions immediately present themselves. The first is, will it become law? The announcement from the government pointedly says that it intends to legislate when parliamentary time allows. So that reform uh, will require primary legislation as opposed to other Brexit-related employment reforms which can be achieved by secondary legislation. And it really remains to be seen, I think, whether the government will wish to devote valuable parliamentary time to this somewhat esoteric issue in the year or so remaining uh, before a general election. Uh, secondly, what is the scope of the proposal? Well, we've got some indication from the recent government documents about the likely scope. Uh, the cap will not apply to non-competes in other agreements, such as partnerships, LLP agreements, shareholder agreements, business sale agreements, and the like. 
It will not apply to other covenants or restrictions on competition, such as non-solicitation or non-dealing covenants, non-poaching covenants, notice periods or garden leave clauses. It will not seemingly apply to non-competes in deferred remuneration schemes, such as LTIPs, share options, restricted stock schemes, whether those non-competes are direct or indirect. And it seems that it will apply to all employees, regardless of their seniority or their pay. Thirdly, how will it be implemented? Again, based on the recent published documents, it seems that the government's intention is to apply this to all non-competes, that's existing, and future non-competes, so that existing non-competes longer than three months will simply be unenforceable. But there's no indication yet of any requirement on employers to notify employees that those non-competes have become unenforceable. There's an interesting question, I think, over what is to happen in the case of an employee part way through a longer non-complete, uh, but presumably someone in, say, month four of a six-month non-compete will simply immediately be free of the non-compete. But again, that detail remains to be seen. And the government has said nothing yet about how long the implementation period will be between the cap becoming law and it taking effect. It is, I think, likely to meet strong opposition from the business community, uh, amongst others. An indication of that was in a letter from Sir James Dyson, one of the UK's leading tech entrepreneurs, published in The Times on Saturday the 13th of May, just after this announcement. And amongst other things, uh, Sir James Dyson said this in his letter, now the government intends to reduce non-compete clauses to only three months, sabotaging the very intellectual property underpinning all future growth. In fields like ours, employees are privy to new technology that hasn't yet been launched and work on a pipeline that stretches many years into the future. And I think that letter highlights a paradox at the heart of the proposal. Uh, the government says that the cap will unleash innovation, yet innovators and investors in innovation want to know that their IP and their investments can be protected by enforceable non-competes. So in fact, the cap could have the very opposite effect of what the government intends. So then the third and final aspect of this, what are the main implications of the proposal that it's possible at least to identify at this stage? Well, let me just mention four of them. First, there's bound to be uncertainty for businesses and employees, which has, I think, been apparent already in advising clients since the proposal was announced. Is it advisable to delay if considering introducing new covenants until it's clearer whether the cap will become law? Will the courts perhaps be influenced by the prospect of a three-month cap as supposedly reflecting public policy in deciding the enforceability of longer non-competes before that cap becomes law. And if the cap becomes law, then standard contracts will have to be reviewed and redrafted, and possibly existing contracts varied. And that will be an uncertain, it will be a costly and a disruptive exercise for businesses. Second, if the cap becomes law, then there's likely to be a greater reliance on other terms. For example, longer notice periods coupled with garden leave, 
which might even negate the alleged competitive benefits of the statutory cap. There's likely to be greater use of other agreements if the cap is limited to employment contracts, such as LLP agreements, in order to enforce non-competes. There's also likely to be a greater use of other clauses. If non-competes are limited to three months, then it's likely to be all the more important for employers to know whether an employee resigns intends to work for a competitor. So I can see that job notification clauses will assume much greater importance. And in enforcing three-month non-competes, the courts are more likely to consider the merits on any application for an interim injunction rather than apply a pure American cyanamide approach because there'll be little chance of a speedy trial before the period of the non-compete will expire. Thirdly, there might well be more litigation involving alleged breaches of other obligations. This seems to have been the experience of practitioners in California, where as we know non-competes are void altogether, where there's extensive litigation around things such as misuse of confidential information, trade secrets, pre-termination duties of good faith and the like. And fourthly, I think clients will want to consider whether choosing foreign law more favourable to the enforcement of non-competes as the applicable law of the covenants, perhaps coupled with foreign exclusive jurisdiction or arbitration clauses will be the way to go. It's ironic, I think, that one of the effects of the proposed FTC ban on all non-competes in the US is that some global businesses headquartered in the US had begun to consider choosing English law to govern their non-competes on the basis there was a better prospect of enforcement of non-competes, uh, longer non-competes under English law. And that, of course, provided the prospect of a growth in the provision of legal services in the UK and a greater use of the UK as a forum for dispute resolution of English law governed covenants, whether by way of litigation or arbitration. But that approach is now less attractive given the government's proposed statutory cap. So the proposed reform might or might not be good for business and employees. One thing I think is certain, it will be good for employment lawyers. Dia Sengupta KC is considering unlawfully obtained evidence, its use and effects. Dia is one of our top silks with vast experience of the most difficult employee competition and team move cases. Having been against her, I can confirm her position as one of the stars of the employment bar. I'm going to be talking about unlawfully obtained evidence. In particular, I'm going to consider the litigation implications of two recent cases which concerned evidence obtained by hacking. The first, Rakia and Azima, is a long-running conspiracy fraud litigation. The second, FKJ and RVT, is a misuse of private information case arising in the context of a sexual harassment claim in the tribunal. By way of headline, in both cases at trial, one of the parties sought to rely on unlawfully obtained evidence. In Rakia, it was the defendant's hacked emails. And in FKJ, it was the claimant's hacked personal WhatsApp messages. Also in both cases, 
the party relying on the unlawfully obtained evidence denied any responsibility for the hacking. In Rakia, it was asserted that the hacked emails had been posted on the internet and simply found there. And in FKJ, the respondent contended that some of the claimant's personal WhatsApp messages had been found on her returned work laptop and some had been sent anonymously by letter. Also in both cases, the party relying on the unlawfully obtained evidence won at trial. But in each case, that has not been the end of the matter. I'll run through the facts of each case and consider the potential implications of these judgments. Turning then to Rakia first, as it comes first chronologically, and is also the more procedurally complicated, as there have been a number of judgments. The litigation started in 2016 and is still ongoing. There are currently appeals outstanding. The claimant is the Sovereign Wealth Fund of one of the Emirates of the UAE, and the first defendant is an American businessman. The claim is for fraudulent misrepresentation and conspiracy in relation to a settlement agreement. Azima denied the claims. He alleged, by way of defence and counterclaim, that his email accounts and data had been unlawfully hacked by Rakia and the information used against him. He argued at trial that the claim should be struck out or the evidence excluded. The trial judge upheld Rakia's claim and rejected Azima's hacking defence and counterclaim. The judge held that Azima had not proved Rakia was responsible for the hacking of his data. If he had found Rakia responsible, he would not necessarily have excluded the illicitly obtained evidence, as without it, Rakia would not have been able to prove its claims. In other words, he regarded the substance of the evidence as more important than how it had been obtained. Azima appealed. The Court of Appeal dismissed Azima's appeal against Rakia's claims, but it admitted new evidence regarding Rakia's alleged responsibility for the hacking and allowed the appeal on his counterclaim and remitted that to a different judge. However, the Court of Appeal also held that Azima could not overturn the trial judgment it held that even if it assumed that Rakia's case would have failed but for the hacked evidence, and that Rakia was responsible for that unlawful hacking, and at least some of Rakia's witnesses gave dishonest evidence about how Rakia came into possession of the hacked material, it would not be appropriate to exclude the unlawfully obtained evidence or strike out Rakia's claim. The Court of Appeal's reasons were that the hacked materials ought to have been disclosed by Azima anyway, that to strike out Rakia's claim would leave Azima with the benefit of his fraud, that it was contrary to public policy, and that there were other ways in which the court may express its disapproval, for example, costs or refusal of interest on damages awarded. Azima sought permission from the Supreme Court that the Court of Appeal was wrong to have held, before the counterclaim had been retried, that his possible remedies did not include overturning Rackey's judgment and or having it struck out. But the Supreme Court refused permission to appeal. 
the matter has not ended there. The eight to 10 week trial of the counterclaim is listed for May 2024. In the meantime, based on further new evidence, Azima sought to add a new counterclaim to have the first judgment set aside on grounds that it was procured by fraud. And that application was granted, but the judge has also granted permission to appeal. So we will have to watch this space in relation to that litigation. Employed her. The claimant was dismissed for falsifying a timesheet. She brought a tribunal claim for unfair dismissal and sex discrimination, alleging that she had been subjected to sexual harassment from RVT throughout her employment. An astonishing 18,000 of the claimant's private and personal WhatsApp messages occupying 900 pages of the Employment Tribunal hearing bundle were provided by the respondent, the law firm, in disclosure in the Employment Tribunal proceedings. The claimant alleged that RVT had hacked into her WhatsApp messages by setting up WhatsApp web on a computer and using her mobile phone to scan the QR code to give access to her messages. A scary thought. RVT denied this. He claimed that some of the messages had been found on her work laptop when she returned it and that others had been received by him le by letters from an anonymous source. First, the Employment Tribunal. The claimant proposed initially to apply for the evidence to be excluded, but then asked the Tribunal not to rule on any of the hacking allegations, as she said she would pursue them in the High Court. The claimant lost on her claims before the Employment Tribunal. Some of her WhatsApp messages were used to undermine her credibility as to whether the alleged harassment took place at all, and if it did, whether it was unwanted. The respondent applied for its costs. That application was postponed pending the outcome of the claimant's misuse of private information claim. The claimant brought an MPI claim in the High Court. RVT issued a counterclaim for malicious prosecution, abusive process, and under the Protection from Harassment Act. RVT applied for strikeout of the claim and summary judgment on the counterclaim, and the matter came before Master Davidson. The master rejected the application. He set out provisional conclusions which are not binding, but which are of interest. He observed that the claim was unlikely to face significant problems. He thought that it could not seriously be contested that the claimant had a reasonable expectation of privacy in her WhatsApps. He noted that only 40 or so of about 18,000 messages were in fact deployed in the tribunal, and thus only those messages were disclosable. There was no justification for RVT's retention or use of the rest. There had been no extant litigation when RVT obtained the messages on his own case, and RVT therefore had an immediate duty to notify the claimant and deliver up the messages. He observed that even if proceedings had been on foot, retention would still have been actionable as self-help is impermissible. He referred to the Court of Appeal judgment in Immerman. He observed that the correct course would still have been to return the material to the claimant or to her solicitors. They would then have had disclosure obligations in respect of the messages.
So what are the potential implications of both of these cases? First, if your client receives unlawfully obtained evidence, they have an immediate duty to return it. Second, it's a good idea to return to solicitors rather than to a party or prospective party, given that the documents are more likely to then be provided in disclosure. If your client's information was hacked, hacked information will not necessarily be excluded from evidence or lead to a claim being struck out, because as a matter of public policy, the courts are more interested in the value of the evidence than disproving how it was obtained. There may be cost consequences, of course, and your client may have an MPI claim for damages. Thank you for listening to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Subscribe below to receive our latest episodes. Visit blackstonechambers.com to learn more.